Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 23. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed author, Simki Kuznick. Simki, thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. And and so um, you're here to talk about firing and timely book that is Paul Murray's Revolutionary Life. This is the, your the your first long prose published yes. book, correct? Yes. Um, you've had a lot of published works in, in in poetry, but this being your the first one, talk to us first, kind of about the, your your inspiration. So, and so because you discovered Paul Murray, you said back in 1972 when you were working overseas, correct? Um, no, it's just that, um, so it just started because I met a, a guy named Bartelome Rousev, who's uh, African-American from New Orleans of Creole heritage, but he was a regional coordinator for Operation Crossroads Africa, which was a summer program to uh, for students to go to West Africa and help, we, we built bricks to make a school. And uh, um, that program was actually model, a model for the uh, Peace Corps because mm. um, the pastor, James Robinson, uh, President Kennedy actually uh, used him as an advisor to, to do the Peace Corps. Wow. And, you know, it was a way to bring uh, people together. You know, I don't know that we did that much to build the school, but we had a lot of interactions <laughs> with each other. That, that was great. And I just uh, made friends with uh, Bart. And uh, and then I went on to um, marry uh, a man from Eritrea. And we had two uh, lovely children. And we uh, we were in, lived in California at the time. And we uh, joined a group called Interracial Pride to support interracial black, white families with biracial children. And so Bart kind of knew that I was interested in interracial families. And then he gave me this book, Proud Shoes, written by Polly Murray in about 1956. And it it, it's a story of her very mixed background, her ancestors in America, a truly American story. And she had written it because um, she was trying to get a job. She was um, refused because of her past associations. And she had references from Eleanor Roosevelt, who had become a friend, and Thurgood Marshall, and J. Philip Randolph, who had done a march on Washington. So she, you know, but even these people uh, in, she had once been a secretary at a tourist agency that took uh, trips to Russia. So mm. that was, you know, considered communist. So there was a little of that. Uh, but anyway, she was very incensed and said, well, you know, I need to tell people about my roots, my past associations. And the, um, so she wrote a book about her family and her, um, she lived with her grandmother and grandfather as her parents had died. And she lived with her aunt, actually, or, or all three of them. And um, so she knew her grandfather. And on his side of the family, he was from Pennsylvania and um, he, this is like, the family goes back to the 18th century. Um, so her great-grandfather had been freed by a Quaker, uh, probably when he was maybe 20, and he never told the family that he was um, had been a slave. She had to find out that in a census mm -hmm. uh, because he was ashamed of it, but it's because he felt himself he was a free man of color. 
And he married a, a woman of a French family in Delaware. And so they, he had been hired as a hired, hired man in the family and she ran off, they eloped together and they worked hard. And for 20 years, they made $1,600 and were able to buy a farm. Wow. And they'd been farming all during this time. And uh, then the son, her, Polly's grandfather, um, fought in the Civil War. Then after the war, the family, uh, they were brick makers. Uh, and they brought the business down to Durham, North Carolina, because grandfather met his wife, who had a completely different story, which was that her, her mother was a uh, Cherokee woman who was enslaved in a very prominent family. Um, there it was two brothers and a sister, none of them married. And their father had been a congressman in President Monroe's time. And okay. they gave money to found the University of North Carolina, which figures later in Polly's life. Her, grand, her great-grandmother uh, was raped by one of the brothers and had her grandmother, Cornelia. And then the other brother... Uh, Took the you know took her away from that brother and had three more children and but all these there were four girls and uh, the spinster sister took them into the house to you know raise them as well they were her servants um, and she used to take them to the church and they would sit up in the pews for the um, so that's the story of and and I think she gave a little bit of land to um, Cornelia the grandmother or I guess once they were married, they, they, she, and uh, so I, I was inspired to, you know, Polly Murray tells about all her escapades and accomplishments and first that she does, but it's, you know, it's a little dry and I, I wanted to write a story because uh, she has so many adventures that would, you know, inspire young people and kind of bring these, the, the more uh, adventurous parts of her life together. And so that's why I wrote and and so so proud shoes uh, was written. How was that compared to the other memoir that the song in a weary throat? Well, that one just describes how she was researching and she tells a story of her ancestors mm. and doesn't talk about her own life at all. So the memoir song in a weary throat is really her autobiography. For those that kind of follow follow Polly Murray's life, uh, what are some of the things that you kind of introduce to people that know about Polly Murray in this, this young adult um, novel memoir? Well, this, this book is different, you know, from there, you know, there's a documentary on her now right. um, by the women who, who did RBG uh, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's actually how they learned about Polly Murray because Ruth, Ginsburg credited Polly Murray for a briefing about e equal rights for women uh, being in the 14th Amendment. A lot, of, a lot of books go into her life, but don't really include the ancestors. And, and you know, and then she rode the rails uh, train like a hobo one time. And, and um, so, you know, people just sort of mention that, but they don't dramatize it. So that's kind of what I did in my book that's a little different. And actually, you talk about people who follow Polly Murray. But when I was writing the book and trying to get it published really about 10 years ago, I would give it to editors, some um, African-American editors, even at, you know, good publishing houses. Uh, 
said, wow, this is really an interesting story, but no one's ever heard of her. So mm. I couldn't get it published. And um, so just recently um, gave it to uh, Rootstock Publishing. Uh, well, I, you know, I pitched it and it's a nice, small, independent publisher in Vermont, which you know about. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, so Stephen Mitchell said, oh, you know, my wife knows about Polly Murray because she's an old, a feminist from way back. And she knew that Polly Murray uh, helped found uh, the National Organization for Women. Um, just one little sidelight that Polly Murray did. <laughs> and, uh, so um, I was happy. I'm very happy to be with Rootstock. Um, right. And but meanwhile, in the time that I the, sort of the 10 or so years that where I, I kind of put the book away and figured, well, we'll, we'll try again later or something. Um, um, academics were writing books about Polly Murray. They had access to her papers at Radcliffe and she used to save everything. She, she, all her papers. And even though she lived in tiny apartments, she would always have boxes and boxes of her letters and, and, um, and she always said one person and a, and a typewriter can start a movement. So she was always writing letters. Uh, she even wrote um, President Nixon a letter nominating herself for Supreme Court justice one time. So like I say, now is her time. You know, she would have been up there uh, nominated for Supreme Court justice, I think, if she was... Uh, why would there be some reasons why nobody has heard of her if she's been ahead of her time for, for, for so many things? Well, we think it, it, it's partly because, so as I was saying, her papers talked about more her love affairs and, you know, private letters. And um, so she was a lesbian, but she, like her memoir never spoke of that. She said she had girlfriends that acknowledged them, but she didn't talk about them being lovers. And, um, so I basically, when I first wrote the book, just used her memoirs, the two books, as my source. And then when I discovered there all this new information about her um, gender um, issues and you know flexibility, and she, um, I, I put that into my into the book, and that's what and. It, that's what kind of gives her a timeliness now because she she is a person who's so intersectional, um, you know, being uh, you know a black woman and and also a lesbian and also um, transgender person. So um, she really wanted to be a man. She felt like she inside was a man was a, was a man, mm. um, and so. I, you know, I added those things. I was going to maybe the couple of things I thought I might read are kind of stories when she was young, how she used to dress. You can see how she's dressed um, in this outfit on the cover. She that is a photo that she gave to Eleanor Roosevelt on the back of it. She says, this is me. This is how I want. You know, I see myself as a healthy, happy person. And uh, that's kind yeah. of the way she she dressed most of the time. Uh, Although yeah, not did, when she was working, she had prim, proper dresses. <laughs> so, yeah, did you want to read an excerpt? Yeah. So um, she, she was very adventurous, uh, you know, liked the outdoors, and she would go hiking in the 30s with her girlfriend. Um, so here, this is a story about one of their trips. Uh, okay. 
So life during her college years wasn't all work and no play. Holly liked to get out of the city when she could and often hitchhiked with friends to save money. In March of 1931, Polly and her friend Dorothy Hayden, whom she affectionately nicknamed Tony, hitchhiked to Newport, Rhode Island, where Tony's family lived. For safety, they wore Boy Scout uniforms and practiced speaking in a low register as they bantered back and forth like regular chums. After an uneventful ride with a traveling salesman, they were let off at the train station in Bridgeport, Connecticut where they planned to use the restrooms. At that time, members of the Traveler's Aid Society might be strolling through the station to help stranded travelers, but they also kept an eye out for vagrants or people engaging in questionable activity. That afternoon, one of them saw a young Boy Scout enter the women's bathroom. When Tony walked out, the Traveler's Aid officer confronted her. Young man, may I ask why you were coming out of the ladies' room? Me? Tony looked around in amusement. Why, it could be because I'm a girl and I have every right to use the ladies', ladies room. But you're dressed like a Boy Scout, the woman insisted. Oh, you mean this? Tony looked down at her khaki pants and waved her olive green necktie. I always wear a Boy Scout uniform when I travel. She leaned forward and whispered conspiratorially. Keeps the young men away from me, you know. The woman continued to press her. Are you traveling alone? Well, Tony began, but then the woman's gaze rested on the door of the men's room from which a second Boy Scout emerged. I see you are not alone, the woman uttered in horror. She now thought she was confronting two underage lovers on their way to elopement or worse. She immediately called a policeman over. Polly realized she would have to confess Officer, ma'am, she added respectfully, tipping her scout hat unconsciously. We weren't trying to fool anyone. We were only having some fun. We're just a couple of girls working on an article for our college newspaper. They ended up spending the night at the Bridgeport Protective Home arranged by the Traveler's Aid Officer. In the morning, they had a hearty breakfast of pancakes and bacon and proceeded on their way. Polly kept a scrapbook of her road trips, which she titled Vagabondia. Their escapade was written up in the Bridgeport newspaper. The, the story headlined, Slip Brings Halt to two, Tour of Two Girls. In her scrapbook next to the news item, Polly pasted another story about a girl who always dressed like a boy, whose mother did not discourage her. Polly must have been reminded of her aunt who had indulged her childhood desire to wear boys' clothes as well. To prove the point, she pasted a photo of herself sitting on a ledge in sporty white slacks with turned up cuffs, holding a white fedora hat. She titled the photo, The Dude, 1931. Because as, as you were saying earlier, this was kind of a work in progress for a lot of years for you. Mm -hmm. Were you always going to make it a YA novel, a young adult novel? Or was that something that evolved into deciding to make it into a young adult novel? I think it was my intention, okay. but I think it's for anyone to read. So, and it's it's funny because some people or some, you know, I, I think, oh, well, the, my Kirkus review actually was uh, featured at, in their monthly newsletter 
Um, so I got a nice review, but also they featured it and they didn't put it in the young adult section. They put it under indie okay. books. So it's kind of up to you know, whoever <laughs> reads it. Um, but someone else said, um, well, my aunt was the first reader and, and she was the one actually said, you know, you've got a lot about women here. Are you sure she wasn't a lesbian and you should be talking about that more? <laughs> and um, so later I, I did. But um, this time when she read it again, she said, gosh, I just wanted to learn more about her. And uh, so, and then one of my, my blurbs said that it was like a primer to introduce you to Polly Murray. But, you know, there's a lot more to know. I couldn't, you can't write it all kind of in, in one book and not a sort of a dramatic book like this. It would have been too long. Right. How much did you have to kind of trim out and cut out? Was there a lot of, was there a lot of stories that you, you kind of wish you put in that, you know, maybe mm. your beta readers or the editors like, ah, it's, it's getting too thick. So. No, I, I just kind of tried to take the most dramatic stories. Now she actually was married. Um, for a month or so, it didn't work out very well. Um, you know, and I, I could have gone into that, but I thought she doesn't talk about that very much and wasn't really proud of that episode in her life. So I just dropped, you know, I didn't write about that. Okay. Um, I, you know, there's a lot about how she's doing research. Um, that's not very dramatic. So I didn't, <laughs> you know, how she wrote all those briefs and, uh, you know, but, you know, the fact that she, when she was at Howard, you can go into some of the first, she was, you know, one of about four women at Howard Law School. <clears throat> and how she got in, she was working, and she did a lot of work um, as an activist, uh, you know, in the 30s, and she was um, trying to raise money for a, a man named Odell Waller, who was up for murder of his, he, he was a black man in the South who was accused of murdering. Well, uh, he did kill um, <clears throat> the owner of the land he was sharecropping and they, the man was trying to steal his uh, crops or the land and they had an altercation. And uh, so she was trying to raise money for his defense. And um, Thurgood Marshall was, was in one of the halls where she was talking and uh, he took her aside afterwards and said, well, your arguments are so good, you should apply to law school. And um, so she, you know, or come to Howard basically where he taught. So that's how she got to go to Howard. So, so talking about like, putting on like your author hat for a second, mm -hmm. um, what were some of the, challenges or differences that you that that you noticed between when you sit down and write your poetry as compared to writing prose well poetry has to just come out from inside of you i think um where you have an observation and it's um using the most spare language uh that you, you can and uh so i i think my transition to writing this book was more about trying to write a, a sort of a coming of age novel. Mm. And I was, I failed at that. I never was really able to either achieve object, enough objectivity to figure out or where to go in on the story. And, and um, I just was too close to the material. 
uh, I think, to um, make it resonate for a larger audience. Um, so this was a way to actually, in a way, to practice writing about something that was just outside of me. The plot was always there. I, I'm not that great at making things up. Uh, so, so I guess I, I like the genre of a biography. And so it wasn't that hard. I, it's funny. I, I was, I was working, I was getting a, well, actually my undergraduate degree and my MFA about, you know, I went on. So this is all while I was working. I used to do two courses of classes a semester, um, you know, or two nights a week for years. Uh, just, <laughs> it takes a long time. I, um, and I was saying, well, how did I ever find the time to write this? Like, <laughs> you know, I just like, and I was looking through my files uh, recently. I'm retired now, um, can do that. Um, and I found a binder, just a school type binder uh, or notebook with lined paper. And I, what I did was I would just take a chapter and I would just um, rewrite it with dialogue and action. And, you know, so there's a lot in there when, when she would make an observation I would put that into dialogue and find a way to make an, a scene out of it. Um, so that, that was my process. The, what, what are the what were some of the, the the skills you had from being a poet, from writing poetry that translated easy easily for you mm -hmm. to to writing? That you said, oh, I'm glad I knew how to do this ahead of time. Yeah, I I think with poetry, I'm very um, sensitive to rhythm okay. and and how how the words really sound as they're read aloud. And um, I'll rewrite a sentence that's perfectly factual or, you know, but if the rhythm isn't there, um, I'm going to change the words because, you know, I want it to sound like real speech or that if I'm reading it aloud, I, I'm, especially with poetry, I, I'm very strict about the grammar. I, I'm not one of those free verse types, you know, where everything's kind of chopped up, uh, you know, if there needs to be a comma and I want you to pause there, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put a comma in and, uh, and, but a lot of times I put commas in just because I want to pause. It's not really for the grammar of it. Even little things that they don't really tell you in writing class, I, I don't think, um, that in dialogue, when someone's pausing, that's when you put in a little bit about, uh, you know, she flipped her hair or something, you know, because um, that just putting that little part in is a pause in reality so that each part of this, the, the sentence or phrases are divided. And, you know, that's just a little trick of writing, I, I guess. <laughs> right. What would be your advice for people who say, hey, you know what, Simki, I got a book. I, I, I got a book together what do I do with it? Um, did you, you know, recommend self-publishing, looking for an agent or, or going into like a, a hybrid house, kind of like what rootstock is, what would be your suggestions for those that wrote something up already? It doesn't hurt to try to get with the bigger publishers and just query them. Um, but I, I felt, and probably if I, you know, I had a little money to pay for it. So, you know, maybe you could even do a GoFundMe to pay for hybrid publishing, but I don't feel there's anything wrong with putting a little bit of your own money into it because just the way the book publishing business goes now. Um, right. 
I, I think it's okay to sort of figure out a hybrid way to publish your work. And you've just got to, I don't know, if it's meant to go there, then it will. But, that, <laughs> but the thing is, I think it's much better now that this book came out now than if I had done it before, because right. people are aware of Polly Murray. Right. Um, this book just got picked up and I'm sure Samantha Colbert of Ruth Stock, you know, she sends out e-blasts to booksellers and everything. But I noticed it was picked up by um, the Journal of Black, Blacks in Higher Education as a notable book to, for, to read. And, you know, it's right up there with a book about um, W.E.B. Du Bois. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just don't know if that would have happened 10, 10 years ago. Right. The, from the first chapter, as you first started writing it, how long was this process take to to put together this book? Well, like I said, I don't exactly remember. And, <laughs> you know, for me, it was just if I had time, uh, I would just do another chapter, and then um, my favorite part, you know, and then I, you know, it was in longhand, so then I would type it up. Uh, and then my favorite part is the editing, since I'm an editor, I, you know, to me, it's really hard to, you know, get that initial and it's always really bad, you know, it doesn't sound right at all. But then when you put it in typeset form, uh, it starts to look a little better and then it's just a matter of editing. <laughs> and so that's kind of my process. So I did those one at a time. There's about 20 chapters in there. Um, so it probably took me two or three, Two, two years maybe. This is something that you've wanted to write for a long time. Well, well I used to say, you know, I was raising kids. I, I could never have more than one extracurricular activity at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was actually, I was going to night school when I met my future husband and I I gave it up for two years because he was my extracurricular activity for a couple of years. <laughs> Would that be something that you would recommend to, to authors and writers too, as well as to do the editing? Well, that depends how confident you are about your actual verbal abilities, I think. But yeah. I've, <laughs> I've always been a good writer and a, an editor, so I didn't read that. In fact, I was amazed hearing about other people's stories that, you know, Rootstock hardly did any editing, except I do have a story about that. Um, you know, since I'm a white woman writing about a black queer woman, um, the first editor they recommended, and because they they recommended a, a copy edit, of course, and I was I, she didn't want to do it because she, as a white woman, she didn't feel qualified to write a book about a black queer woman. I looked for uh, other editors, but Rootstock, uh, Stephen Mitchell um, found. Um, a very good editor named Sima Stubblefield, um, and she did a real, we couldn't figure out it was a developmental editing or copy editing or, but anyway, it was actually sensitivity editing. Okay. You know, had to put the language up to date. I can read a little, there's one, you know, one of my favorite passages. So this is about the, the great grandmother, the, the French woman. And okay. so she's farming and they live in a mixed community. She has a white neighbor and she's white and her husband's black. And so he comes by 
grandfather and and you know Polly's family would tell these stories so they the family kept a sense of these kind of the way their ancestors spoke, talked and told stories so they were handed down through the family and so she says grandfather Robert told a story about a white neighbor coming over one day and saying ain't Sari has her name was Sarah has any of those no accounts around here been stealing your chickens or your pigs lately if they have, just let us know and we'll take care of them for you. Ms. Sarah looked up from weeding the garden and said, Yes, Uncle, to tell the truth, some of my chickens have been missing. The only trouble is, I don't know whether it's white no accounts or black no accounts that's been taking them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and she would say, we're all betwixt and between, getting it from both sides of the fence. Uh, and, and she says, she told her children, if they ask you what you are, just tell them what they see with their eyes. They can't carry off with their noses. Folks is folks, and they all look the same in the privy. <laughs> <laughs> And what would you say? Because you did, you know, you did mention that you said that uh, one of her quotes was like, you know, one person plus a typewriter constitutes a movement. A movement. You know, as as a young adult novel, what are some of the uh, what's the takeaway that you want folks to come away from after reading Polly Murray's revolutionary life? Well, I guess just to be audacious uh, about who you would contact to help you or do something that needs to be done. She, her friendship with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt started with a letter. I, I think it was, she wrote her so many, uh, but um, I think it was about, she, Polly Murray was trying to get into the University of North Carolina graduate program. And of course they, did, they didn't um, <clears throat> allow blacks in. And the idea was, well, if there's another school, you know, for blacks with the same degree, you know, then she'll go to that one. But they didn't actually have a school for sociology, whatever it was, um, you know. So there was no other um, school in the area to go to. Um, but so she wanted, I guess, um, Franklin Roosevelt knew the head of the school, or anything. she wanted him to help with that. So she would she would write Eleanor Roosevelt to bend the ear of, of her husband, uh, the president, um, right. on various issues. And uh, yeah, she um, she just wasn't afraid to, I mean, she ran for office in Brooklyn one time. She just was never afraid to step out and, and try something new and um, uh, not afraid to be the first and fight for what she believed in. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so Simpiki, thank you for for getting this book published and, and allowing people to learn more about Polly Murray and what she's done. Where, what's the best place to purchase the book if people are interested in getting the book? Well, I would say, I mean, you can get it anywhere, but your favorite indie bookstore is a good start or straight from Roots, Rootstop Publishing. They'll send you one if, if you order it from them. Um, mm -hmm. Arms and Noble, Books a Million, all of them. There's a hardcover that I I didn't even realize they were going to do that, but apparently that's for libraries. Okay. Um, so we're right. hoping that a lot of libraries will, will find it. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, thank you very much, Simki. This has been a, a great experience, and I'm so happy to to know that this book is out here. And it's uh -huh. as you say, it's timely. I can't. Yeah. It's, we it's didn't a, get into all her first because that just takes too long. So, but if you lot. look her up, uh, you'll find a whole uh, list of all her firsts. <laughs> Yeah, like you said, there's a lot of firsts that she did. She definitely was a trailblazer. So. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much, Simki. And, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing what, what's coming up next for you, too. So Okay. Maybe I'll get that book of poetry together. Uh, That's right. you got to yeah. come back on the show and, and talk about your poetry. So. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you.